This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Well, hello and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. This is part of our pain medicine series, and I'm here today with Dr. Jean Saladuk. Dr. Saladuk is a nurse practitioner on the pain treatment service at Boston Children's Hospital in the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine. Dr. Saladuk got her Bachelor of Nursing at St. Anselm College and then went on to get her master's degree at the University of Rochester and her PhD at Boston College. Dr. Saladuk's uh, clinical and research interests are to improve the assessment of pain and the safety and efficacy of pain management in pediatric patients. And I'm very excited today to be talking with her about pain management and assessment in children with medical complexity. Welcome, Dr. Saladuk. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me. So if I had to take condense this talk into just a few words, I would say that it's behavior never lies. The most challenging part of pain management in nonverbal children with intellectual disability is recognizing and quantifying their pain. Once we recognize the pain and we understand the source of pain, then we can manage it. But um, knowing their usual behavior and comparing it to their current behavior is key because behavior never lies. These are the fossilized uh, tracks of a dinosaur, which on first glance seems interesting, but maybe not anything related to uh, pain behavior. Um, but if you look a little bit closer uh, and read the article, which I did, um, you can see that the left foot appears uh, normal. So here's the left foot here, and then the right foot appears smaller. Um, and when you look a little bit closer, you can see that there is a small stride followed by a long stride, short followed by long, short followed by long. Um, and if you look at the, the right digits and compare them to the left digits, you can see that they are certainly not the same. Um, and the left digits seem to be um, uh, more larger. And so I, what we're seeing is basically limping in a dinosaur. So it's really interesting. This has been preserved literally for millions of years, pain behaviors in, in a dinosaur. Um, we know that limping is a protective mechanism that uh, limits weight bearing on an on injured limb. Uh, to allow for time for healing. Um, and, and we can see what the, the left foot and the normal foot looks like versus the right foot. So it's really interesting, I think. Um, and the behavior was there, uh, in this case, preserved literally for millions of years. But sometimes we have to sort of slow down and see it. And I hope you can see it um, as I pointed it out to you. Um, and I'm not comparing nonverbal children with intellectual disabilities to dinosaurs, I'm not at all. But when trying to understand someone's pain experience and you don't have their 
their words to express it, then all we have is their behaviors. We have their behaviors of what their parents are seeing or their caregivers. We have other caregivers um, observing them. And then we have our own behaviors. Um, but we have to sort of slow down, take the time, uh, compare it to normal, their usual or normal behaviors in order to really see it. I think it's important to define the population that we're, we're talking about. Um, Nonverbal children with intellectual disabilities are included within a group of children with medical complexity. And this was defined um, by uh, Dr. Cohen as uh, children that have substantial health needs um, with a significant burden to family in both time and uh, both and financially as well. Um, these they're also children that have chronic conditions, which are typically severe and associated with medical um, fragility. Um, they are typically high uh, healthcare users, um, including uh, the need for multiple service providers, many times from different specialties. So they might have uh, a pediatrician and a neurologist for spasticity and seizures and a, and a GI doctor for their feeding issues and a cardiologist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, many of them are uh, dependent on uh, technology, such as they may have uh, feeding pumps or VP shunts or G-tubes um, or uh, intrathecal uh, pumps for their spasticity. Um, so that's the population that we're talking about. Um, not all children with medical complexity are nonverbal children with significant intellectual disability, but they definitely fit into this category of patients. I also want to um, define uh, pain. I think that's really important. And the most accepted definition of pain is from the International Association for the Study of Pain. Um, and they define pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that's associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. And they give um, actually six different uh, ways of looking at this. I've included three of them. Um, the first one, um, uh, expression because that really pertains to this population of children. And they, they say that verbal description is only one of several behaviors to express pain. And the inability to communicate pain does not negate the possibility that a human or a non-human animal experiences pain. Um, this was a major change in the definition of pain uh, uh, from the um, uh, from IASP, uh, and, um, and it was very welcome from a, a lot of different people. Um, they also talk about the biopsychosocial context of pain, and pain, as we know, is a, a very personal experience um, that's influenced by biology, by psychology, and also by social factors such as developmental age and learned behaviors about pain. Um, and then third, they talk about pain and nociception. And those are, are very different phenomenon. Um, you know, 
pain is usually, but not always, linked to nociceptive activity that is usually produced by injury or inflammation after trauma or surgery. Um, nociception begins when the energy that is um, produced or, or threatens to produce an injury um, is uh, transduced into um, nerve activity. Um, and that leads to uh, an organized response of the body to that threat um, of, of injury. Um, many times uh, we, we um, connect those two, but they are distinct and, and different things. In 1965, Melzek and Wall described the biopsychosocial model of pain with the gate control theory of pain. And what they said is that evidence fails to support the assumption of a one-to-one -one relationship between perception and intensity of the stimulus. Instead, the amount and quality of pain are determined by many psychological variations. And, and this is really important for clinicians to understand, because sometimes we expect everyone to have the same quantity and quality of pain after a similar pain stimulus, such as the same surgery or, or a needle procedure. But, but we know that everyone is very different. And for many reasons, such as developmental level, learned behavior, level of anxiety, meaning of the pain, and many other contributors, the same stimulus is experienced differently by different people or even the same person at different points in their lives. So, you know, it's important to take a minute uh, to talk about pain assessment in children in general. Um, since pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon, self-report is the best way to assess pain. And, and whenever self-report is possible, we should ask patients um, ab about their pain. Um, we know that um, pain tools are not, are, are not perfect. Um, uh, no measurement device is, but they are the best way that we have right now to understand a person's pain intensity. But pain tools should not be the sole basis for pain interventions. So when assessing pain, it's really important to consider the context of the pain. Like what is the, so, the source of pain? What is the medical condition that we're treating? What are the risks for respiratory depression? Um, what is the child's developmental level? What's their emotional state? Um, is, is it distress that they're feeling or pain? You know, are they in fear? Are they anxious? Are they depressed? Are, do they feel hopeless? Um, all of these can intensify the pain experience uh, in a child as well as an adult. And it is important that we look at their behaviors. Even when a person can self-report, pain behaviors are important to, to observe because sometimes there may be a disconnect between the patient's self-report of pain and their pain behaviors. And it's important to understand why that 
um, disconnect uh, occurs. Um, I remember a young child who reported to me that he had no pain at all, but he was splinting and guarding his abdomen after a small bowel resection. When I dug a little bit deeper, I realized that he wanted his NG tube out and he wanted some strawberry ice cream. And so he was reporting no pain, thinking that that would um, get him uh, what he was, what was hoping for. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful overview of pain and the perceived differences that different people and different experiences can play in terms of how people perceive and feel pain. And I'm hoping that maybe you can walk us through a little bit of the ways that we can assess pain for children using different scales or how, how we might go about starting to assess those differences that might occur. There are, are several um, uh, tools uh, to help us. Um, the most um, popular faces scale is the Wong Baker faces. And this, uh, this tool um, is preferred by children, um, perhaps because it, these simplistic faces were modeled um, by children's drawings. And this tool is used for preschoolers and young school-aged children. The numeric rating scale is a tool for children greater than seven years, and it can be administered either verbally or, um, uh, or using the written uh, scale and just having the child point to a number. Um, when, you, when you administer it verbally, uh, it's important to, to give patients an anchor of no pain. So ask about on a scale from zero to 10, not one to 10. And, and when you ask uh, people about it, it's, you know, you can say simply that um, on a scale uh, from zero to 10, zero being no pain and 10 being the worst pain uh, you can imagine, um, how much pain do you have right now? Um, for the numeric rating scale, um, uh, you, it's important that patients have an awareness of magnitude uh, and comparisons between magnitudes to use this tool. And you can assess this in a child simply by asking which number is bigger, a five or a seven. And, and usually an awareness of magnitude is attained by typically by age seven to eight years old. Um, for children who are too young to self-report, the FLAC tool, Face, Legs, Activity, Cry, and Consolability, was created and validated for use in newborns to age seven years old. Um, it's, uh, it's also assessed on a zero to 10 uh, score. Um, and you simply um, look at each item, um, rate each one, face, legs, activity, crying, consolability from zero to two and add up the total. And that is the pain score. So, and, and this tool is used all over the world to assess pain in, in young children. Well, thank you so much, Jean. This is an, an it has been an incredible overview of the pain scales that we can use for pediatric patients. And I know you've done a ton of work in terms of thinking about how do you assess pain in children with medical complexity. So I was hoping you could walk us through a little bit of how you might adapt these tools or think about the assessment in, in those children. Yes, absolutely. Um, what we know is that children with medical complexity experience more acute and chronic pain than their peers without medical complexity. Um, and 
and and it can this pain can really affect their quality of life so it is really important to understand their pain experiences and to know how to assess pain in this population um, in an analysis of uh, 1.5 million documented inpatient pain scores um, the median pain scores overall were quite low, um, and a small percentage of hospitalized children had persistently high pain scores, which we defined as mean scores throughout their length of stay or of greater than or equal to seven. And that uh, population of children with persistently high pain scores included patients with medical complexity. Um, it also included patients with chronic pain conditions and sickle cell uh, disorder as well. But children with medical complexity were, were one of the, the groups um, it, with persistently high pain. This is important because you know, it shows um, that uh, this is a, a population that we really should focus on uh, to manage their pain. Um, sometimes this population of children has idiosyncratic pain behaviors um, uh, that's not typically seen in neurotypical children. And in an analysis of parent-described pain behaviors in nonverbal children with intellectual disability, parents uh, described pain behaviors in their child, and, and they were able to link them uh, to whether it was mild pain, moderate, or severe. So parents are able to identify pain behaviors in their children. What's interesting is that within certain categories of behaviors, which are starred on the slide, we saw a range of behaviors. So some parents described that their child vocalized more when in pain, but some parents said that their child vocalized less. Some children slept more when they were in pain and others couldn't fall asleep and had more physical activity when they were in pain. Some children sought human interaction when in pain while others shied away from human interaction. Some children had muscle tightness when in pain uh, and, be, uh, and others became very floppy when they had pain. And so within these categories of behaviors, it's important to understand that we may see opposite reactions to severe pain. Um, in addition, we saw self-injurious behaviors such as biting their hand, scratching their chest, banging their heads or pulling their eyelids. In uh, the individualized numeric rating scale is a pain tool validated for this population of nonverbal non children with intellectual disability because of these idiosyncratic pain behaviors, as well as these opposite responses um, that we see in this population. Um, it's, it's very uh, simple to help a parent fill out this, uh, the individualized numeric rating scale. You simply ask the parent to describe the child's behavior when not in pain, and you document this in the zero um, area, and ask the parent to describe the child's behavior um, when in pain and to link those behaviors with a number from zero or from one to 10 um, in, uh, to quantify pain severity. Well, thank you so much for the description of these variable uh, behaviors that we see in children with intellectual disability. And we obviously care for a lot of children with complex medical needs. 
And um, it's clear that parents know these children very well and their pain behaviors. But I'm curious, um, parents might have to leave the bedside at some point to go grab food or, um, or take a break. And I'm wondering, you know, are there any strategies that you can offer to us as clinicians on how we can best uh, assess pain in children with medical complexity? Are there any strategies that we can use working collaboratively with the parents um, to help us better assess those, the, the pain um, of children with medical complexity? Oh, yes, um, absolutely. The individualized numeric rating scale is a pain tool that's validated for this population of nonverbal children with intellectual disability. Um, it was created um, because of these idiosyncratic pain behaviors um, and, and also self-injurious behaviors that we see in this population. It's very simple to fill out with parents. You ask the parent to uh, describe the child's behavior when not in pain, and you document that in the, in the zero box. Uh, and then you ask the, the parent to describe the child's behavior when in pain and, and to link those behaviors um, with a number that corresponds to um, their pain uh, severity. Um, and parents, uh, you can guide them by helping them to think about when your child had pain, um, you know, how did they respond to it? And, you know, parents might remember, oh, they had a femur fracture, which was really painful for them, and they stopped eating during that. So we'll put that in the, the 10 box. Um, and um, what, what we found when we studied this tool is that parents were absolutely able to identify pain behaviors in their children, uh, and they were able to quantify these behaviors as well. I think it, it would be uh, fun at this point to talk about a case. Um, and when we think about this case, you know, think about how, how you would uh, respond to it and what would be your assessment um, of his pain. Um, so um, when you enter a room of a 10-year-old boy with uh, global developmental delays, his eyes are wide open and he is um, watching his mother while she's reading to him in a very soft voice. The child has been out of the OR uh, for six hours after a hip reconstruction. Um, on physical exam, he is awake and appears calm. His heart rate is 114, blood pressure 122 over 68. His respiratory rate is 14 to 16. He is 96% saturated on blow by oxygen. He has a G-tube in place and is not yet receiving feeds. He has a peripheral IV in place and is receiving IV fluids. Um, his leg is warm and well perfused and there's no apparent bleeding um, at the site of his surgery. Um, the patient has a lumbar plexus uh, nerve catheter that's running 0.1% ropivacaine at 0.45 milliliters per kilo per hour. And the max dosing for that medication is 0 0.6 uh, milliliters per kilo per hour. He's receiving uh, acetaminophen IVQ4 around the clock, as well as ketorolac around the clock. He does have IV morphine ordered, PRN, and it was administered last uh, in the PACU, which was three hours ago. 
Um, the nurse assessed his pain recently as zero out of 10, um, but the mother reports her son is in severe pain. So how do you respond and, and what is your assessment of pain? Um, you know, I think it's really important to ask the mother what she is seeing, um, you know, and in this case, um, perhaps she tells us that he, he usually likes um, uh, rock and roll music, but when in pain, he likes this book and, and sort of quiet reading. Um, she also tells us that his uh, eyebrows are kind of squished together and his eyes are wide open and he's not vocalizing in the happy sounds that he usually makes. Um, so hearing this, um, we, we ended up increasing the nerve catheter. Um, we gave the patient a dose of morphine. And interestingly, uh, within 15 minutes, he starts cooing and pointing to his headsets, uh, looking for his rock and roll. And his um, facial expressions seem much more relaxed. So we have the nurse complete the individualized in their grading scale with the mother. So we all have a better understanding of this child's pain behaviors. So, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if that's helpful. I think sometimes it's helpful to go through um, cases so that we, um, you know, so you can understand how to use these tools. That's really helpful. And, you know, one of the questions that, that sort of comes up for me is, um, you know, with my education hat, how do we sort of educate some of our providers? Um, and, you know, have you found anything that's really useful given your um, work as a consultant on the pain service and sort of getting the whole team on board and sort of talking about how do we approach these children? I think in general, we really do need to understand pain behaviors in this population. Um, we don't, you know, we don't see these patients come here and there, but they, they are a big percentage of the patients that are in the hospital for long periods of time. So I agree with you. It is, it is really important that we um, uh, help clinicians to nurses as well as providers to understand pain in this population. Um, in the individualized numeric rating scale, which uh, is documented uh, which is able to be documented in electronic medical records uh, is, um, is available and it's helpful as a resource. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, if the parent isn't there in the middle of the night, well, we have her knowledge of, of her child's and her, her knowledge of her child's pain behaviors right there within that tool. So, I mean, that, that it's one way to, um, it, to sort of help us, all of us, um, you know, sort of night and day uh, to take care of these patients. I think that's really helpful. And I could imagine, you know, as a, a clinician, you're really busy, you've got a lot of patients to care for. I'm curious how long it takes, do you think, to go through the individualized numeric scale with a parent and sort of fill that out? Because, you know, I could imagine um, some of the hurdles being time and sort of sitting there and taking the time. And I'm curious, you know, how long it takes and how can you um, educate all of us on, you know, on being able to do that more quickly and efficiently so that we can do this more regularly. Absolutely. You know, it, it typically takes less than two minutes to, to do that, to go through parents, 
uh, for the most part, they spend their lives interpreting their children's behaviors, you know, especially children that don't have verbal abilities, you know, and, and some of these parents have known their, you know, have been with their child 20 years plus. And so they know their child's behavior, they understand it, and many of them are able to say it very quickly. Um, for uh, if you're very busy and unable to spend uh, two minutes, um, we have a family education sheet, which explains all of this, and it has places that parents can fill in. And so you can, uh, if you're the nurse taking care of the patient and you're really strapped for time, you can give parents a quick explanation, hand them the family education sheet, and then have them fill it out so that you can put it into the computer when, when, you, when you have a moment. Thank you, because I, you know, I think probably a lot of us would love to, to do this more and, and make this individualized, but it's helpful to know those resources are there to you know, have families fill this out and even prep themselves or start thinking about it for when you go in and fill it out together. So that's a really incredible resource to be aware of. Thank you. Just like all patients, um, pain must be managed according to the source of pain, um, whether it's nociceptive pain or inflammatory pain or, or pain from muscle spasms or distress from a non-pain source. It's, it's really important that we understand the source of this distress uh, and, and to um, manage it according to that source. Um, and just like all patients, it's important to think about the red flags. Um, anyone that has a pain that is um, unexpected and, and unexpectedly intense, um, especially if it's sudden or associated with altered vital signs um, like respiratory distress, hypotension, tachycardia, or fever, anyone that has pain that persists longer than expected, anyone that has pain that's associated with uh, coolness of a limb, color changes of a limb, or painful numbness, um, anyone that has acute onset of headaches, um, or headaches that are associated with neurologic symptoms and signs, anyone with weight loss, uh, fever, systemic changes, um, or back pain with fever, weakness, sensory changes, or neurologic symptoms and signs. Those are red flags that need to be evaluated, uh, well, you know, quickly uh, and uh, to understand the source of pain. Um, and, and in this population of children, it's really important to identify that, especially because they don't have the words always to describe that. So your uh, physical exam is key. Your understanding of um, what happened and the history according to the parents is so important and, and key to that as well. Well, thank you so much, Jean. You know, I think you you gave us a really great case that describes a patient who had surgery and has expected pain. And, you know, I think we've all cared for children with medical complexity that are clearly in pain and clearly have something um, that's bothering them and leading to this pain. And sometimes it can be a little bit challenging to sort of figure out exactly what's going on and think about a, a structured way to approach these children to try to identify those sources. And I wonder if you have any strategies um, in and or might walk us through kind of a common scenario and, and how we might 
sort of attack this, this problem and the, these children that have medical complexity and that it makes it challenging to kind of figure out where their pain source is coming from. Let's talk about a, a nonverbal child um, that comes in, um, uh, has medical complexity, and comes to the emergency department with, with pain behaviors of unknown etiology. Um, this is a 13-year-old female um, with um, autism and seizures that are well-controlled on valproic acid um, that has arm biting that started four days ago. And, and now she has a fever. Um, she, upon physical exam, she is awake and grimacing and her, while her mother's trying to distract her. Her heart rate is 125 and her blood pressure is 110 over 62 with a respiratory rate of 16. She is febrile. Um, she doesn't have a cough uh, or cold symptoms, um, but her oxygen saturation is 92% on room air. And um, she has a peripheral IV in place and is receiving IV fluids. No one in the family has been recently ill, um, but she has not eaten for two days, but her mother has been able to get fluids into her and she has a good urine output. Um, her arms are, are bruised and reddened on her right forearm. So um, in thinking this through, um, what, you know, how do you determine what is the source of her distress? So you know, it, it is really important um, to listen to the parents and to hear the history of what happened. And then physical exam is, um, is so vital to this. Uh, and when you listen to her lungs, um, you, you hear some, some wheezing um, and you send off um, some blood work um, because uh, she is ill appearing. So she's, she's not her usual self. She's febrile and you're, you're concerned that, that something serious may be going on. Um, and so you, um, you, you check for CBC and diff, uh, you check uh, urine uh, UA and urine cultures, um, CHEM 10, you check LFTs, um, you, um, because she's febrile, you, you check uh, for blood cultures and, and you check also her medication levels um, to make sure her um, valproic acid is in a reasonable level. Um, and um, in, in this case, because there's a change in her oxygen saturations being 92%, you also get a chest x-ray. And, and in this situation, what you find is that this patient has pneumonia um, and, and requires treatment for it. Um, and, and what's interesting is, and we do see this, is that um, it, patients, um, you know, they, they may not always present in the same way that neurotypical children present. You know, they have some distress, maybe a little bit of, of respiratory distress, um, and they may present in a way that, that you wouldn't expect. Um, we, um, we recently, we, we studied um, the GRASP, um, which is um, guidelines for ruling out and assessing the source of pain in children who are nonverbal with intellectual disabilities. And it goes through and it guides you through um, differential diagnoses um, and the usual um, uh, labs and, and um, 
things that you should look for in this population. Um, I didn't include all the differential diagnoses because it is it is long, but we um, we have published this, uh, and you know it is it can be really helpful. Um, I I use it myself, uh, and our our piece our. Um, our teams that care for kids with uh, intellectual disabilities use it uh, every day to help identify um, uh, the source of pain in children with intellectual disability. Um, I, I just wanna conclude um, with that the pain in nonverbal children with uh, global developmental delays and medical complexity is challenging to assess. Uh, and it really depends on um, a structured clinical examination and also knowledge of the child's usual behaviors. Um, and you know, when, when it's really important that we um, develop the skills for assessing pain in this population, because they are at risk for having pain um, because of their medical complexity and having pain that's challenging to recognize. Um, and, and remember that behavior never lies, but we have to take the time to see it and, and to understand it. Well, thank you so much, Jean, for this incredible overview of how to assess pain in children children with medical complexity. And I think the lessons that I'm going to learn are really to slow down and, and take the time and to partner with the parents and really think about their child as an individual and, and how they typically present and present when in pain. And so I thank you for giving us these strategies, which sound like can be very time efficient um, when used properly, that will really help us have a, a deeper understanding of the pain needs of these children. So thank you so much. And thank you for all of the work that you do caring for these children and all of the pediatric patients at the hospital with pain. And thank you for this opportunity. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information.